This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach and a hypnotherapist and I'm the author of the books, The Anxiety Solution and my new book, Brave New Girl, Seven Steps to Confidence. This is a place to become your calmest, happiest and most confident self. Basically, this podcast has turned into me interviewing people that I have, I have stalked on social media for years and I'm talking to the incredible Puna Bell, who is a journalist and an author. And she has written the new book, In Search of Silence, which is absolutely brilliant. And on this podcast, she shares her incredible story of how she's coped with losing her husband four years ago to suicide. She talks about her brilliant book, In Search of Silence, which is you know a real journey that she takes us on through you know, handling things in her life from burnout to going through grief, um, her decision to go traveling. And she talks a lot about in this episode, that decision and what made her decide to do that, despite what a lot of people thought, because, you know, whenever we do things to change our lives, often people, you know, might not agree and they might, you know, make their opinions fairly known about that. So we talk about that. We talk about the pressure to live up to the fairy tale. And you all know what I mean the pressure to tick certain boxes, to get married, to have children, to live happily ever after, and how very often, if ever, this doesn't end up turning out that way, because life is just not that simple. And so we talk about how we really need to redefine happiness and success. And Puna shares her experience of burning out, and she also shares quite an amusing, but also quite an important story about some monster munch and an airport, which I think you'll enjoy. But also there's a really important message there too. We talk about resilience and honestly, you know, Purna is an amazing example of someone that is resilient. And it's something that we probably all need more of in our modern lives. I think a lot of us don't feel very resilient and we wonder, you know, how would I cope if I lost someone close to me? How would I handle that? And so she shares some of her insights into that. And we also talk about how to talk to someone who's lost someone because it can be awkward for us. We sometimes will avoid these sorts of conversations because we're scared of saying the wrong thing. And actually saying nothing can be far worse than saying, you know, quote unquote, the wrong thing. 
And so I asked Purna about, you know, how can we talk to people who've lost someone and what to say and what not to say. So before we get into the episode, I want to invite you to come over to karmayou.com forward slash confidence because I am running a free five-day confidence challenge and it's starting on the 1st of July, 2019. And I'm going to be leading you through five days of really simple yet very powerful exercises to help you to grow your confidence, calm your inner critic, create a new positive self-image, and also connect with other people who are working on the same things as you so that we can all support each other and cheer each other on through this process. So you can just head over to karmayou.com forward slash confidence and enter your email address and I'll send you all the details in time for the 1st of July. So let's get into the episode with Purna Bell. So welcome, Pona. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Can you tell us, maybe for people that don't know who you are, what it is that you do and how you got to where you are today? I am a author and journalist. I've worked as a journalist for about 15 years. I've published two books. The first one was called Chase the Rainbow. The second one is called In Search of Silence. In the background, I also campaign a lot around mental health and have done so for the last four years. Um, Four years ago, my husband Rob passed away by suicide and he also struggled with depression and addiction. So those are issues that I have spoken about quite a lot and my books are on that subject. And most recently, I've been really interested and I've been looking at how you rebuild your life after something major happens. But generally... You know, as a journalist and as an author, what I am just interested in is how to be happy, how to have meaning in your life, and what are some of the things that contribute to that or shape that. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I loved your book, In Search of Silence. I thought it was really beautifully written, really, you know, it it seems as if you kind of go on a bit of a healing journey with it and you take us with you. And I felt very inspired also to go traveling afterwards so that was a a, yeah definitely thinking about that myself can you tell us about what the book is about the book is in a nutshell it is about me deciding that I had reached a point in my life where I was living and working in London I was doing a pretty major job as executive editor for HuffPost and it was pretty full on. And also in that last year before I left, I'd also written my first book while juggling a full-time job. I decided to go traveling because I just wanted to be out of London. I wanted to be in very specific landscapes, which are described in the book, which I ended up going to. And I, I kind of shy away from saying that I went traveling to find myself or to, you know, seek some solution in, in terms of how I was feeling at the time. But I think if I had to summarize how I felt by the end of it was that I didn't really know what I was doing for most of it. And at the beginning, I was really unsure about whether I'd made the right decision to go traveling. And, and that thought did crop up at various points, you know, when I'd be um, by the sea or just going for a walk or something. And and I think I was looking more into the future of, well, when I come back, what is that future going to look like? And the best way I can describe it was I was having a, a conversation with my sister shortly after I came back to the UK. And I just noticed that I was just calmer and there was a lot more stillness about me. And she said, you are different. You do seem different and not in a 
negative way, actually in a positive way. And the way that I described it after that was almost as if I went on this journey and I was very angry at the start of this journey because I think there was a lot that I felt that was unknown about my life, that this thing had happened to me, which I had no control over. And I needed to think about rebuilding my life. And I felt that I didn't know what to do with it. And also, I just felt like all of my peers and my friends were already ahead of me, you know, they were already moving on. And somewhere along this journey, there's no definitive moment that I can go, ah, and then that happened. But it's more like I put some of that stuff down. So I've been carrying it for a long time, all of this emotional baggage. And there were just certain things that I had reconciled my anger around and I just left it there. And so by the time I had come back, it's not that those things no longer exist or that I might not revisit them if I go through anything similar or things that touch upon, you know, similar spectrums of emotion. But it's just that I'm the anger was kind of taken out of me a little bit. And I felt a bit softer around certain things by the time I had returned. It wasn't like, you know, that classic narrative that you have with memoirs that I met the man of my dreams, or I had my dream job waiting for me or any of that kind of stuff. It was more just that I felt very equipped that if any of those things happened, that I'd be able to make some very conscious, good, active decisions about what I actually wanted in my life from that. I love one of the, your chapter names, which has got to be the best chapter name ever. <laughs> I know which one this is. Eat, pray, fuck you. <laughs> made me laugh. I think it's because when everyone, when I told people I, I was going to do this, that was their instant go-to. Oh, isn't it a bit eat, pray? And I was like, it's not Eat, Pray, Love. And that detracts from a book that, you know, a best-selling book that really worked for Elizabeth Gilbert. It worked for many other women who read it. But that's not the standpoint that I mm. was coming from. And the title wasn't to kind of, you know, say fuck you to that book. It was more just the this, like, I am my own person. I am my own woman. And I don't need the cliff notes of another person's book to decide what my journey is going to be. And I kind of almost felt like people had already thought out what this journey was going to be for me before I'd even undertaken it. Mm, interesting. I'm, I'm sure there have been a lot of people who have who have read that other book, Eat, Pray, Love, um, <laughs> and have ended up very disappointed that they haven't had that kind of fairy tale ending. Well, I don't want to spoil the ending of the book for anyone that yeah. hasn't read it, which I just have done probably. But yeah. maybe it kind of... Yeah, it's a bit of an unrealistic, yeah. I think, I mean, I did read that book while I was actually traveling and I, I thought I can see who this works for and I can understand and see how it gave a lot of women comfort, especially when you think about when that book came out. You know, if you, I'm in my late 30s and I'm single and I think that when that book came out, there wasn't a whole load of books out there for women of that age demographic who were feeling a bit lost about what to do with their mm. lives. So I get why it works. But I guess where I was coming from with things was what troubled me about that whole, you know, the journey of going traveling and finding yourself is that there will be a solution at the end of it. And I don't really think, I think if you go into traveling with that expectation, or if you're looking to heal parts of yourselves, and that, you know, thunderclap realization doesn't arrive, I think that that can actually be quite devastating. And for some people, I think it might, it might almost turn internally where you just think, 
oh, is it me? Am I the only one that didn't get it? Did this work for everyone else, but it didn't work for me? So I'm more a fan of, I think, people being able to find their own resolution around things because whatever happens in your life I'm not going to be able to tell you how to fix it or how to resolve it. And you can take advice and you can take guidance from things, but ultimately you have to fashion that into something that is right for you. A good friend of mine lives in Bali and she says, full of women, oh my God. lost women who are looking for their Rodrigo. Or, <laughs> I think that's the name of the guy she married. Yeah, because yeah, I think um, your book, it kind of talks about how we get sold this fairy tale of life mm. and how you know, very often that's not the way things turn out, whether you don't end up meeting the person you want to marry or they pass mm. away or you don't end up having children or you don't end up buying a house. And I think there's so much pressure on us to sort of fulfil these things. And if life doesn't go that way, we can feel like a failure or feel like, you know, I don't know. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so when I started on that journey and actually where the book starts really is me feeling like that fairy tale was a a lie and b hadn't really worked out the way that i thought it would so during my teens and 20s and i still am a massive believer in love and a massive supporter of it but in my teens and 20s i had this one goal apart from my career <laughs> this other personal goal of meeting my soulmate and when i met my soulmate i would know who this person was and then we would end up together and then that would be it. And I wouldn't be sad. I wouldn't be lonely. And I think for quite a number of years, I just kept getting into relationships and they didn't work out. And I just wondered if this person was ever going to come. And as is always the way, when you say that, you know, you kind of almost think that you're never going to meet someone. Along came Rob, who was introduced to me by a mutual friend. And we met and it developed very quickly and I wasn't expecting it to. And even when it was in the early stages of us getting together, you know, it wasn't like I just was skipping in a meadow, you know, making daisy chains. I questioned it at every turn and I just thought, oh, God, this is going to, you know, this is too good to be true. And and I think that when I looked at the kind of future that we had together, I wanted it, but I didn't I didn't know whether it was actually going to last. And when it did and when he reciprocated how I felt. And it was the most equally balanced love that I've have ever had with someone in a relationship. And it felt like exactly the right thing. You know, I don't think that I loved him more. I don't think that we had unrealistic expectations of each other. We just really loved the other person for who and what they were. Unfortunately, you know, Rob had some really big issues. Like he had mental health problems that he'd had since he was a child. And both of us grew up, like a lot of us grew up in a landscape where we didn't really understand mental health. And so he knew he had depression, but I don't think he ever really knew how to properly treat it or to deal with it beyond self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And when we got married, I literally thought that it was as simple as you get married and then this is it. We just continue living and then we'll end up really old, maybe our 80s or 90s, one of us will pass away, but we will have had a full life together. And I think that the rhetoric and the narratives that you have from your family members around you, you know, when your mates tell you that they've met someone to Hollywood films and TV and so on, they all get you up to that point. They all get you up to that moment where you say, I do. 
Nothing prepares you for what happens afterwards. And no one really tells you that when you share your life with another person, it's a huge deal. And actually what you're promising to do is you're promising to take on their issues and their problems, which at that point is an unknown quantity and vice versa, right, in terms of what they're promising to do for you. And during the course of our marriage, there was a lot of love there, but Rob had really serious addiction issues. And in 2015, I told him that I just don't really see how we can work this out because we'd gone through this whole roller coaster of relapse and recovery. And in May 2015, he, from, you know, the number of things that he was dealing with, he took his own life in New Zealand, which is where he was staying with family. And the aftermath of that, which was looking at everything that Rob had been through, looking at what we had been through as a couple, the things I really should have known that societally I felt that we should have known, I just thought nothing has prepared me for this. And I I was told, I was told that if I met the love of my life and if I got married, then that's the guarantee to a happy and safe life. And I think the realisation for me was not necessarily that it didn't work out that way, but that actually there needs to be broader representations, A, of what love is and that it's not just romantic love. So maybe don't, you know, in the case that some people do, don't sacrifice all of your other relationships for the pursuit of romantic love. But the second thing also is that it is a fairy tale because actually we're only being sold the perfect picture of it. We're not actually told some of the harder realities around it. And when I look back in retrospect, when Rob was alive and we used to go to dinner parties or couples events or whatever it was, no one's actually talking about the stuff that's going on with them. Even when you meet up with mates, once I found that there was a big distinction once you got married that you don't necessarily talk about the tough stuff that's going on in your marriage. And I get why that is because I perpetuated that. You know, I didn't tell people that Rob was severely struggling with depression and his addiction issues as well weren't that wasn't really my story to tell regardless but i did not feel comfortable doing that and i did feel that there was this invisible standard that everyone else was also held to that i was held to where if i admitted how severely screwed up things were then we had somehow failed at it you know we'd failed at the fairy tale we'd failed at love and i just i think that that's why i'm quite passionate about having broader depictions of what love is and actually saying that when you do romantically meet someone, it's an amazing, wonderful, precious thing. There is just no, there's, you know, I will never lose my faith in that type of love. But I think that we do need to be honest that it is, it's complicated and it can be difficult. And so when things are arising that might be difficult, it is okay to talk about it. And actually, maybe if more of us were a bit more honest about it, we'd have a more honest understanding of love and be better equipped, I think, to deal with things when they go wrong. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? I think, yeah, it's so easy to look at a couple and just assume they're smiling in photographs, they must be really happy, but you don't know what's happening. And often people don't don't talk about it really. Even on Instagram, people might talk about their own their own stuff, but probably maybe because they don't want to talk about the other person that's not yeah. It isn't their Instagram. People don't talk necessarily about their relationship stuff. So. Well, it's it's just the, yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. It's the, oh, my God, this is the best day ever. And then you ask a friend about what happened on that holiday or what happened on that day, and you find out that it wasn't the best day ever. And I just wonder, I don't know whether that's almost a narrative that we're putting out there because we want to believe that 
or it's just you want other people to think that you're having an amazing time. I don't know. I just, I don't know what's served by that. I don't know really who benefits from that. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Gosh. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on things like the wedding day. Like if it's not the best day of your life, then have you like failed at your wedding? Yeah. Is your whole your life going to be over? That kind of pressure that we're not really seeing the whole story of what is the case for a lot of people. Do you think we need to redefine what success is and what, what happiness is? Do you think we've just got things muddled up? Yes, 100%. I think we need to redefine what success is. I think a big part of why I felt I needed to leave London was despite it being this amazing hub of creative thinking and forward thinking and so on, I find that it's actually very limited when it comes to what your personal pillars of success should be in that, like a lot of cities and a lot of other places, it's economic success, it's career success. And I'm not saying that either of those two things aren't things to strive towards. And for sure, you know, I have those as as goals in my life, but they're not the only goals. They They really, really aren't. And I think that one thing I would say through having gone through all of this stuff with Rob and having gone through a fairly intense, full-on grieving process is it does whittle down and it does really remove some of the bullshit that I think we tell ourselves of what's important and what's not. And there are people that I know who will go into work, for example, every single day, feel sick, probably cry in the loo, you know, will be having a terrible, terrible time of it, but will persevere with that job because they believe that, you know, they might never get that job title again if they leave or they go somewhere else. I'm I understand that there's obviously a practicality to needing to work to earn money for food and shelter. And I'm totally acknowledging that. But I think beyond that, I do know people that will not try for other jobs or will just kind of like just literally try and push through what is an absolute wall of misery because they believe that that's what they should be doing. And I think very, you know, just in time, I think I realized that Actually, me going for a big job title or a big this or a big that is not going to be the thing that I really, I didn't really want it. And I didn't think it was going to be the thing that made me happy. That might make some people happy and more power to them. But I think having the awareness to realize why you should push yourself forward to go for something is one of the most valuable learnings that I've had. Because rather than putting myself on a path because I don't know, it like looks impressive to other people. Like, who gives a shit? Like, other people are not the ones that have to be in that job day after day or put in the hours that you have to. And I think that that, that self-worth that comes and that, that validation that you get from other people, it's fleeting, it's temporary. Whereas instead, the validation that you have internally and the self-worth that you generate and build within yourself, which comes from doing things that give you meaning, that give you purpose, that make you happy, that is far more long-lasting than any of the, oh, what will other people think if I don't go for it? Or what will other people think if I don't get it? I think that's such an important message. I know that so many you know, of us can get into getting more and more promotions, more and more pressure, being really miserable, but feeling like they can't leave because they can't leave the money or because of worrying about what other people think. And, yeah. You know, it's such a shame. So I hope people listening can just step back and see what's if this is affecting them. 
I know that you talk about in your book a moment where you you kind of reached a bit of a burnout with work and I think you said um, that your boss basically said to you, you know, that's what you're getting paid for, you know, just so you can handle this. Can you share that experience? Yeah, that time was really, I can deal with a lot of stress, but that time was one of the most stressful because it wasn't just that work was really stressful. It's just that I also was really unhappy with my personal life. And so there wasn't really respite from any of it. And I think that work was one of the things which I thought I can do something about and I can change. And during a particularly hellish time at work, and I, to give context, I mostly really loved my job. I really loved the people that I work with. But that job came with a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure. And that was a particular time when things were just really bad in terms of pressure. And I just had this moment where, and I am not a crier, Chloe, like I do not cry at work, but this this time I did and I just couldn't stop crying. And I think it's because I just bottled it up for a really, really long time. And a senior colleague saw me and I, despite me trying to be in a part of the office where I didn't want to really be seen, like that's why I was there. Um, senior colleague saw me, wanted to chat to me afterwards and just check in that everything was okay. And then when I did finally say what was wrong even though it's not something I really wanted to talk about yeah the response I was given was well that's what you get paid you know the money for and I understand that you know looking at the broader message that we have around mental health I understand why people don't come forward about this stuff because I was in a scenario where I'd finally opened up about what was going on and I'd basically been told that I didn't really have the right to feel like that because I was being paid to deal with lots of pressure. And I think that for me, I was talking, I had to leave the office to go for a walk to just clear my head a little bit. And I was talking to my sister and we were talking about this, you know, the idea of money and it giving you options and so on. But she very gently said, you know, the money is not the be all and end all of everything. And actually, it, I think that it isn't, you know, to earn a good salary is a really brilliant thing. And I'm very glad because the salary that I was on, I never thought in a million years that I would be on. But that salary counts for nothing if my mental health is nothing, because it means that I can't do the job. It means that I'm not really functioning as a human being. And when you think about it, if you are asking someone in the middle of a mental health crisis, can I give you some money? Here's a stack of cash. Is that going to fix things? Is that going to make it better? Like, of course, it's not going to. And when you see it in those terms, it's just ludicrous. And I just think that for me, I just that was my defining moment where I just thought, actually, I don't really want to be in the situation where I am cannibalizing and compromising my own mental health to do a job because I'm getting paid the money to do it because I'm I'm just not that's not what I'm about. I work in well-being. I work in the lifestyle sector. And I've seen what happens to those people. Those people who are on that trajectory of burnout already don't just suddenly go, yeah, you know what, I get paid a salary, so I should be okay with it. Those people end up hitting a wall and then they require months to recover and recuperate and literally have to rebuild their minds. So for me, I saw those warning signs fairly early on and I was able to make a decision about what I needed to then do. It did take a while for that whole process to kick in to place in terms of me handing my notice and so on. But once I had made that decision, 
it was theatrical how differently I felt about the entire thing. And I just think that, you know, people were a bit concerned about what would I do for work and would I be okay for money and so on. But I think that in my entire career thus far, I'm not saying I, I mean, I was on a, you know, especially being a journalist, I would say for the first 10 years of my career were really badly paid. But I had always managed to have a job and I'd always managed to pay my rent. So the thing that I told myself was that in the most dire times, I had always managed to do that. So like at the bare minimum, I could manage to do something that would help to pay my rent and my food. And and it literally, that is what burnout does to you. It just reduced things to that survival state where I just thought, I cannot be in this job any longer. I cannot live this lifestyle any longer. And at least the sort of the counter to this is that I know that I can earn enough money for my food and rent. And if that's what it has to boil down to in terms of my basics, then that's fine. So putting your mental health before money, because I think there's that, there's something that Dalai Lama said that he he laughs about people in the West that work really hard to earn money and then end up spending loads of money to get their health yeah. back because they've burnt out and they need yeah. therapy or they need, you know to go into rehab or something because they really burn themselves out. Yeah, or the number of um, people that I know that will refuse to spend money on therapy, but that will spend money on holidays. And it's not to say you shouldn't go on holidays or whatever, but I know, like when I know that people are going on holidays, I know that a big part of that is because it's not just about necessarily going to a different country and trying new things. Absolutely, travel is part of that. But a big part of that, and I remember from when I used to go on holiday when I was at work, was just to not be at work and to de-stress and to forget things and to almost make up for the fact that I was just working nonstop the rest of the time. And I just remember saying to someone who like really needed to go and see a therapist, you know, we'd kind of spoken it through and they said, oh, well, I don't I don't think I've really got the money to do that. And I understand that everyone is different and, and you have priorities, but it just seemed to me to be really not odd is the wrong word, but just that this person was spending money on holidays to escape the thing that if that money had maybe been funneled towards something like CBT or therapy would have probably meant that they didn't need as many holidays. It, like yeah. it was a very vicious cycle and it's not to shame anyone who wants to go on holiday, but it's just holidays have become, sometimes have become this almost this form of therapy and escapism, but it's literally, I find it, to me anyway, it was like a band-aid. It was just putting it off for a different time and a different place. And I think the reason why I had got to that point where I did feel so burnt out was because I wasn't really actively taking any time to think about what it was that I wanted. I'd go on holiday with my mates, have an amazing time, and then just come back and be like, oh, got to go back to work again. And then the whole thing just starts over and over again. Yeah, I think we've got our priorities a bit wrong and I think it's it is again about society and what's expected of us so we're expected to want to get a bigger and bigger job and move up with more responsibility and we're expected to all go on holidays mm -hmm. and you know the more money you earn the more you end up spending on a holiday yeah um I was talking to someone earlier about you know often we say that we don't have time to I don't know look after ourselves or look after our mental health and yet we Look at how much time we spend on our phones. Look at how much time we spend watching Love Island. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, let's all just, just examine where we're at and see if that's working for us, myself included. I stalk you on Twitter. 
And I saw you tweet, I hope you don't mind speaking about this, about a Monster Munch incident. Can mm. you can you talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> I was in the airport and I have a very specific routine in the airport. And also I was just very, very tired and very overworked. And I went to Double Hate Smith's and I wanted to get a packet of Monster Munch. Pickled onion flavour, by the way. Don't at me. Classic. Yes. Classic. And I was looking at this aisle and I realised, I thought that they didn't have it. And I honestly, my lip just started wobbling. I just thought, oh my God, why don't they have it? I really wanted it. And then I saw that it was literally on the next aisle to it. And at that point, I just thought, you just nearly lost your shit because W. H. Smiths didn't have pickled onion monster munch. And that is not normal. So... What had happened was it made me do a stock take really of where I was in terms of my own levels around burnout and stress and mental well-being and was very poor, to be honest. And I think that the last four weeks to six weeks previous to that, I had my second book had come out. I was working, you know, my normal job like the rest of my freelance work around that. And it was a lot of um, evenings as well and a lot of weekends. And I just had had no time around anything. And on the one hand, when people say or when I listen to someone and they're saying, oh, you know, I haven't had a day off for X number of weeks or whatever, there is a part of me that just thinks, well, you have control of that, you know. So if you are, for example, someone who works in the public eye and you say that you don't have any time off, I don't really have sympathy around that because I just think that you do have a choice around what you say no and yes to. And I realized that what I had done was I had fooled myself into thinking that I had to say yes to everything because if I didn't, the opportunity would pass me by and there's a small window that's open and I should take it and I should take every opportunity that's given to me and so on. But what it had resulted in was me just being an absolute shell of a person by the time I had got to buy a packet of crisps. So to me, I just had to, I almost did like a stock take moment of where I just had to say, look, you've, you're the one that has brought yourself to this position. You know, no one else has done this. You did not have to say yes to all of those things. You could have definitely instilled more work-life balance. And one thing that I had noticed that I had really let slip was that all of my normal routines that I would do, so whether that's, you know, doing 10 minutes of breathing and meditation before I go to bed or doing yoga or even just doing a bit of journaling or just writing for fun, I had not really done any of those things consistently or even having a bedtime, right? Mm -hmm. So... I had not had a proper bedtime for about a month and I was I was completely feeling the effects of it towards the end of it. And so that for me was a, a moment where I just realized that I had gotten too complacent and I had gotten very cocky and I had just assumed that, oh, you know, it's only like 10 minutes of breathing. Oh, it's only a bedtime. What does it matter? But it's about the accumulative impact of all of those things. And it doesn't mean that I won't have mental health issues or problems or I won't get anxious or upset about something. But it means that when it happens, I am so much more fortified to deal with it and to deal with fluctuations and work if my sleep and if my state of mind is a lot more calm and balanced. And so I think after that point, because I was flying out to Italy 
when the Monster Munch incident happened, was flying out to <laughs> Italy and then literally was staying the night there and then was coming back. And I think the first thing I did when I got back was I just, you know, got home, put some yoga on YouTube and just did some yoga. And I've done it every single day since then. So this is about like ten, going on about 10 days. And I just feel it's it's almost imperceptible, but I just feel like so much more solid in my footing and my grounding, you know. So even if something stressful does happen, I can kind of breathe through it a little bit and just I feel a bit more able to tackle it than I did before. Yeah, so interesting. I think there's two things there about recognising what the signs are that you're reaching a point where you're not able to cope with things. And that might be different for everyone. Some people get stomach issues, some people get snappy with people, some people get you know, headaches, yeah. and just to be really aware of that. Some people have meltdowns in WHC. <laughs> <laughs> and then just to make sure that the things that you're doing every day, those little kind of self-care practices are still there, because I can totally relate to that idea of getting cocky with it because mm. I have a meditation practice which I do every day but if I if I skip it for a couple of weeks it's not if I skip it for a day that's totally fine doesn't make any difference but if it's like a couple of weeks I start to slip and become more anxious and I have remember that I have to it's about that consistency and those little moments throughout the day to keep to keep us on track so yeah I'm glad I'm not the only one that experiences that I'm really interested in resilience and how we can become more resilient what what have you learned about resilience through your experiences? The biggest thing I think I've learned about resilience is it's not something you're innately born with. I think that it is a thing that comes into being when you go through something and after you have gone through whatever the challenging thing is, you're at a crossroads to decide how you're going to move forward and how you're going to tackle life. And I think that it's not so obvious at the time that it's a choice, but it is a choice. You know, if you had told me 10 years ago, oh, Prana, you're going to do, this is going to happen to you and this is how you're going to handle it afterwards. I don't think I would have had any understanding because I remember very clearly when I was a teenager writing in a diary about death and writing about, I think I, I was sorry, I was a goth. So it's something I used to, you know, romanticize a lot. But like, I just remember sort of having this really emo, oh my God, like, I love this friend so much. And if anything ever happened to them, I mean, how do people like deal with death? And I've got this like passage of this diary, you know, of, of and you can read it in the words that, I did not think I was capable of surviving anything like that. And now that I sit here at the age of, you know, 38 and having been through what I've been through, I know that in the aftermath of Rob's passing and subsequently other things that have happened, not just him dying, you know, when I was 31, I was diagnosed with a hole in the heart, which I had had since birth. And it had just got symptomatic. And then that was a complete shock and had keyhole surgery and recovered from that. And that also to me is another sort of, you know, fairly major life incident in my personal history. And it is about how you choose to move forward from that. And I think that with the hole in the heart, for example, I just remember thinking that I had not really appreciated what my body was capable of doing. The fact that it had done amazing things despite having this like one inch hole in, in it. And I just thought, actually, I need to look after it. And I think that my body does a lot that I just, 
I don't even think of it as doing and it's the machine and I need to take care of it. And I think that after that, I had a very different relationship with fitness for sure after that. And just generally, you know, not wanting to put stuff in it that just would kill it all the time. That would be, you know, good if I could kind of preserve it for as long as possible. And I think after Rob, you know, I still don't have all of the answers around things, but I know that there was a point where when I felt capable of making a decision about something, I tried to make the decision that was going to move me forward. And I don't use the phrase moving on because I don't like it and I don't like what it implies. But I, when I say moving forward, I mean where you take the experience that you have undergone and you carry it with you with kind of strength and dignity and you use it in other situations in your life to add strength and value to what you're doing. And I think that for me, I just didn't want my entire life to be defined by that. But I also wanted to learn from it. I wanted to, uh, you know, there's nothing that you or I can do to rewrite the past and to change things. And I'm not a massive fan of having regrets about things because regret is such a useless emotion. You you know, I can't do anything to change what's happened. But I can, every single moment in the future is something that I can affect and I can change. And so I choose to educate myself and I choose to be more compassionate and kinder to people than I was before. And I think that resilience to me is learning from your experience around that. But it's also, it is looking at times when you were strong, you know, where you did do a thing that you thought you weren't capable of doing. So I write this kind of journal of where... um I list certain things of like when something really good has happened, really unexpected, or when I did something that confounded my expectations of myself, because otherwise I just forget. But I think having, even if it's not written down on a piece of paper, I think having that close to hand is really important because it reminds you that you you did it once before and you can do it again. And so for me, resilience is almost this thing. It's this kind of superpower that you might not use all the time, but it kicks into gear when you really, really need it. But it does, it is something that is sharpened and formed when you do go through something pretty major, but you make the decision to live and to live in the best possible way rather than, I think, living in the past of what could have been. I love that way of describing it. And such a good idea to reflect on Mm. times that you've overcome things and times when you have handled difficulties because it's so easy to forget about those things or not give ourselves credit for that. And I know that's going to be helpful for people listening because I think a lot of people have got fears about how would they handle things if something, you know, happened to a loved one or if something bad happened. So that's, yeah, reassuring to hear your story. Thank you. Mm. Can I ask you about imposter syndrome? (laughs) Because I hear a lot about imposter syndrome and I feel like, I don't know if other people have experienced this, but it's something that we're only just talking about, like a few years ago, people wouldn't have heard that term, for example, but now it's getting talked about a lot more because I know that you do some work around this area. Yeah. So I do workshops occasionally around certain topics and definitely ones that are in the mental wellbeing space. And imposter syndrome was the last workshop that I did. And it was the one that I think resonated the most with people that came along And also, I think that I just felt very connected to them and to imposter syndrome as a subject. And when I posted something on Instagram about it, because 
to a certain extent, I live in a bit of a media bubble where I just assume everyone knows what these phrases are. Actually, quite a few people on Instagram posted and said, I feel all of these things, but I didn't know it actually had a name. And so actually naming it is quite powerful because when you then feel like any of those things, you can go, oh, that's actually my imposter syndrome. That's not real. You know, me me trying to tell myself that I'm rubbish and they only picked me for this job out of chance or because they were desperate. That's actually imposter syndrome. That's not anything really to do with my skill set. It's something that I think I have felt for quite a lot of my career. And I think that I would venture to say that it does affect more women than it does men. There are different complexities within imposter syndrome in terms of like how our workplaces are set up and how our society is set up. So, for example, if you have children and you're returning to work after giving birth, you might feel a particular way around your imposter syndrome. If you are a woman of colour, you might feel a particular way. And there are different layers, I think. Or if you work in an industry, let's say, for example, the STEM industries where it's predominantly men, you might feel that might feel it more strongly than others. I think that for me, I have just gotten to the point in my career where I am just tired of it. I'm just tired of feeling like I was picked by chance or that someone's going to find me out because the way that I describe it is that it's like being in a courtroom and, you know, your imposter syndrome is kind of the prosecution who's basically telling you that you're really rubbish and you were completely terrible, you're ill-suited for the job. And there's all this evidence, right? There's all like exhibit A, B, C and D to prove actually to the contrary that you are completely capable of doing this, that you've done this before, that you've worked in other industries, that people really like you, that you've got good appraisals. So it's almost like your defense, which is you pushing against your imposter syndrome, is to actually say, well, this is that's not true. And the reason why it's not true isn't just because I say so, but you don't have any evidence, firstly, to back that up. And secondly, I've got all of this evidence to prove that I am good for this role or I am good for this job. And that's the way that I almost compartmentalizing it in that way. That's how I like to think about it, because every single time that I've been picked for something and I thought that it was, you know, a fluke, I have managed to overexceed my expectations and do a really good job of it because fundamentally, for example, one of my skills or one of my attributes is that I'm a, I'm a grafter, I'm a really hard worker and nothing really is going to take that away from me. Like no one's going to make me work less hard because I happen to feel lazy that day. That's just not built into my DNA of how I work as a person. But my brain will try and tell me otherwise. My brain will tell me that this is the one exception where I'm just going to slack off and go for a nap rather than, you know, actually work when none of that is true. And I just feel like if we could identify imposter syndrome a bit more, if we could just be aware of when it kicks in. So, for example, like speaking up in meetings, mm. like I did not realize that half of the reason why I never, well, I did speak up in meetings, but it depended on the dynamic and it depended how comfortable I felt. But in big groups, I didn't always speak up because I just thought, well, what if they think my idea is stupid? Or what if someone else has a better idea? And that whole thing that just kicks into gear is just nonsense because, you know, no one is telling me that stuff. I am telling me that stuff. And I think especially when it comes to being a woman who works in a predominantly male environment, 
that stuff is quite damaging because if you are like the only woman in a room and you're not speaking up, how are you going to put your view across? Like, how are you going to represent your viewpoint? And that's why I'm really, I'm really, really on it when it comes to my imposter syndrome and why I'm quite passionate about getting other people to recognize it within themselves. Yeah. Um, and what a shame if we're, if we're just keeping things to ourselves, you know, all the, all the experience and wisdom and intelligence that we might have, you know, we need to get our voices out there. I love the idea of just finding the evidence that you are good enough. You are there for a reason. <laughs> you know, I like to remind myself if I'm going into that story of, you know, who am I to do this? I just recognise that I am actually doing it. So I am doing it. Yeah. So probably not an imposter and I probably am good enough since I am actually doing it. So that's uh, <laughs> what I like to remind myself. But yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. Can we talk about weightlifting? <laughs> I have heard that you can lift very heavy things twice your body weight. Yes. Is that right? That is correct. How did you get into that? Because do your parents also weightlift or they... They're active. This They're, is what you wrote in your book. Yes, they are active. My dad used to weightlift when he was younger. He's 72 now, so he does still go to the gym a ridiculous amount, but he doesn't do big weights anymore. And my mum, she does lift weights, but like they're kind of like dumbbells and so on, and, and both of them do go to the gym a fair amount. But that is not how I got into this, though. (laughs) Yeah, I think that I'd always been interested in fitness because my dad was interested in it. But uh, a few years ago, I just got to the point where I just really wanted to carry my own luggage and I wanted to be able to move things around my house. And uh, Rob was no longer here. And I did not want to ask my dad or some other male friend to do those tasks for me. And and it was a slow process because I was very suspicious of weights, as a lot of women are. You know, I just didn't really want it to what I thought would bulk me up. I was also quite scared of them. I'd never really been in the free weight section of a gym before, and it had seemed very intimidating. And very slowly, I hired a personal trainer who showed me how to lift weights in the right way. And for a couple of years, I kind of did that. Not, I wouldn't say that they were massively heavy weights, but they it was a respectable amount. But in the last year, so I think we're talking about since last August, I got a new personal trainer who is also a powerlifter. And I ended up signing up for a competition as a way of focusing some of my training. And I ended up really loving it. I thought I would hate it, to be honest. And, and it just seemed, again, very intimidating, but I loved it. And that has just led to a couple of uh, a competition that I did in March. And I've got the Euros in our federation coming up, which I'm taking part in with all of my teammates. That's so cool. I'm so excited about it. That's so cool. I'm inspired. (laughs) I need to lift some heavier weights. It's one of the most rewarding things I think that I have ever done. And it is a way, not a shortcut, But it is a way of generating self-esteem and self-worth in a way that doesn't rely on anyone else apart from you and your capabilities and your dedication. And I think that's the thing that I love most about it because it doesn't hinge on anyone else. Like no one else can take it away from you. Okay, sign me up for the powerlifting. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so sorry if we're like jumping around in topics a little bit, but I had one more question I wanted to ask you. I guess it's about difficult conversations and how often we shy away from them. And I mean, death is a a sort of typical example of something that people don't want to talk about because they're scared of saying the wrong thing. They're scared of upsetting the person that they're asking. Um, Are there certain things, I mean, would you encourage people to talk about that more? And are there certain things that people should say or shouldn't say? Or how can they approach approach that? It's something I get asked a lot. And I, my first thing is just to caveat this with everyone has a different approach in a different way. So as an example, some people really hate it when you say, I'm sorry for your loss. I personally have no issue with it because I would rather that that someone just says something or anything to acknowledge what had happened rather than us, you know, shambling around it and pretending like it, it wasn't there. I think that even though I have experienced a bereavement that was very close to me, it says something about societally how we're conditioned to think about grief or rather not think about grief in that even now, so this is four years after Rob passed away, even now when I hear that someone's loved one has died, you know, my first reaction, like, and this is, you know, I and I have no control over this reaction. My first reaction is, ooh, I should kind of like leave them alone because they probably don't want me to contact them. Now, I don't think that that's the right way. I think that we hesitate from contacting someone or saying something because we think that, maybe they're not thinking about it and I don't really want to upset them or I don't want to make them have to think about their grief. And the fact is, is that when someone very close to you has passed away, for, I would say, a minimum, that first year or two, I would say definitely first year, you don't have the luxury of thinking about anything else. And definitely in those first few weeks after it's happened, So the idea that we don't want to disturb someone or we don't want to make them sad, I mean, their life is devastated. So what reaching out to someone actually does is it, it, uh, the way I always describe it is it's almost like this, just the speck of gold that for a moment just almost like brings you out of it or it makes you think, oh, okay, you know, that's, that's really sweet or that's really nice that other person has thought of me. You might not feel like that. You might not be in a state to reply, for example. But I just think that reaching out is indefinite. Like, absolutely, it's the right thing to do versus staying away because you want to be respectful. On the flip side of that, when you do then have conversations with someone, you know, my advice would be not to have conversations about how that person specifically died. Definitely not, unless the other person wants to talk about it, and in which case, let them talk about it rather than asking loads of questions. But as a sort of, you know, a guideline, if someone has just died, asking about, like, arrangements is not a bad thing. That's something that you can ask because those are fundamental practicalities of things that need to be done. So I would just say that acknowledging to me means a lot more. It makes a really, really big difference than someone who's decided to remain silent. And I just think that um, because half the time you feel like your grief is invisible anyway. And I think that just even if it's just saying something and then you can move the conversation on or you could give them the option and say, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but if you want to talk about it, we can. Giving them the option means a hell of a lot more than you already making that decision for them and deciding that they don't want to talk about it so you won't bring it up. 
Yeah, so so it's already so much in their mind. It's not like you're going to be reminding them of what's happened by asking them because obviously they're already thinking yeah. about it the whole time. I saw something online, I don't know if it was you that posted it, but it was someone that said, oh, I wish I could have a badge that said, ask me about my dead mum. And someone who'd lost their mum. Was that you that posted that? No, it wasn't me, but um, I think that there is, you know, the Grief Cast, um, which is run by Carrie Adeloy. I think she has started, not her personally, but I think that there's someone that actually has pins, like that you can put on your Mm. coat or your cardigan or whatever that just says that you can ask me or announces that. I don't think yeah. that that's not for me, but I think that for some people, and that's what I mean about grief being such a different mm. experience for different people, mm. is that for some people that's absolutely what they want and they do want to be asked about it. But I would say that maybe I might say that because I am quite public and vocal about my grief. If I was going about my day-to-day life and I felt that my grief was really invisible and no one really wanted to talk to me about it. Yeah, absolutely. I would wear one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it's, you know, going to be different for everyone and, you know, possibly just asking them, do they want to talk about it? And they can always say no if they don't. And that's, you know, totally fine. But it's better to ask rather than to just ignore it as an issue because that's more, more hurtful. Yeah, so it's definitely something we think we need to to talk about more. I think as a side society and I think and so. I mean, we're so we're so awkward about it, mm. and I think it's also just being honest about the fact of is it really? Are you really not saying it because you don't want to upset them, or is it because you feel super awkward about it, and you don't really then want to have a conversation that makes you feel awkward? And I think um, you know Rob Delaney like talks about grief in such a precise and raw way in a way that I really really love but his kind of whole thing is so this like few minutes or this these few moments of awkwardness that you as a person have like you can't put up with that compared to what I'm kind of going through in terms of my bereavement and I think when you look at it that way you're kind of offering up moments if not you know minutes of your time to someone who is in it, like constantly, who literally it's the first thing that you think about when you get up and before you go to bed and there's no respite from it. And so I think doing what we can in those moments to just ease it for other people, that is definitely, I think, a worthwhile thing when it comes to breaking down some of those taboos around grief. Mm, that's such a good way of putting it, just to to know that it's okay for us to feel a bit uncomfortable at times. Yeah. I think we're so used to just trying to make ourselves comfortable and maybe it's okay to not be comfortable. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for talking to me. Where can people find you online? And obviously your book is in all the good bookshops. Well, uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, I'm on social media at Purnabelle. In Search of Silence, which is out now, you can get it in all bookshops and it's on Amazon, um, Kindle. I don't think there's an audio version of it yet, unfortunately, but yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please come and let me know over on Instagram. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a rating in iTunes Leave me a little review and please make sure you're subscribed to get all the episodes that are going to be coming up. 
And just a reminder that the five day confidence challenge that's coming up is available for you to sign up for now. It's totally free. It's going to be fun and powerful. And you can sign up at karmayou.com forward slash confidence. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a great week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.